you have your Bible, join me in Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. When we look at the book of Romans, as we have been studying, without question, the first book, part of the book of Romans, so clearly defines the gospel. It helps us to understand what is the good news, what is the saving grace that is in Christ. And we get a clear definition, as clear as anywhere in Scripture, in the first part of the book of Romans. So clearly that part is about what is the gospel, who has the gospel, and how you receive the gospel. Then we come into the second part of the book. We've been looking there in Romans chapter 12, now uh, chapter 13. And we answer the question in this part of the book of how do gospel people live? First, you present your body a living sacrifice. That's your responsibility. Then, as a believer, how do you behave? And we looked at 13 truths there, loving without dissimulation. And then last week, we jumped in and we looked at how do we then operate in the world and with those in the world around us. We are gospel believers, so how do we then live? As we come into chapter 13, we now see how gospel believers live in the society in which God has placed us. Now... Before we go any further, I need you to answer a simple question tonight. There's no trick here, okay? Who is Paul writing to in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7? Who is Paul writing to? Romans. Okay, all right, good. I told you there's no trick here, okay? He is writing to Romans. We have to keep that in mind. Our history always has a way of tainting our perspective. I will give you an extremely simple illustration of this. Yesterday, there was a football game between the University of Georgia and the University of Tennessee. Though I live in Georgia, I grew up an Alabama fan, and so I I grew up in a household of people who were from Alabama, and so I grew up an Alabama fan, but I also lived in Tennessee, and so I don't have a begrudgery towards the University of Tennessee. I didn't watch much of the game. I watched a little bit in the first half between Georgia and Tennessee. From my perspective, it was a good game in the first half. From Georgia fans' perspective, of whom one is sitting in here tonight, Their perspective was that the referees were wearing Tennessee orange during the game in the first half. Now, perspective changes the way that the game looked. Because as a Tennessee fan, I really didn't, and I'm not really a Tennessee fan, but favorable towards Tennessee. As I look at them, I saw nothing. As a Georgia fan, there was plenty to see, apparently. Okay, so your history taints your perspective. It's always true. It's always true. It's always true. We, we try as hard as we can to be unbiased. But there is a natural bent in all of us that our historical vantage points change the way we see things. This is true nationally. When I was in Japan several many years back, one of the big issues that they were battling there in Japan at the time was the textbooks that they were getting ready to create for the school. The history books Because in the history books, they were rewriting their involvement in World War II in the history books. And China was putting a great deal of pressure on Japan to keep the history accurate to what happened. Whereas Japan and their history books were trying to make them look a little bit better to themselves and to the next generation coming up. 
because they saw it differently. You, I was going to say you can't rewrite history, but you can rewrite the history books. We're trying to do it in our own country. But your history changes the way you see what unfolded. When we come to Romans chapter 13, our history is going to Americanize Romans chapter 13. At the end of the message, we're going to look at this a little bit from an American point of view. But we need to look at this from a Christian point of view. Gospel people first. So, now comes the question. When it comes to government, as is discussed here in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, is government a good thing or a bad thing? When we look at government, is government a good thing or is government a bad thing? Romans 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? And I think you tie that in to the end of verse 2. That the damnation that's talking about there is the judgment from that power on earth. Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain... For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So you need to be subject not just because you can be judged by the world, but for conscience' sake. For, for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So as we come here and we look at government, we ask the question, is government a good thing or a bad thing? For the most part, we would tend to answer that question conditionally, meaning, well, it depends. In some cases, government we recognize is good. In other cases, we see government as bad. And we can spend the rest of the night for everyone voicing when they think government is good and when they think government is bad. Uh, So we all have our opinions on the good and bad of when government is from a contextual standpoint. But from a Christian biblical standpoint, we have to answer the question, is government good or bad biblically? To do that, we need to understand government. What is government? It is those that govern. To govern means to execute authority over. To have a conduct, excuse me, to conduct the policy actions and affairs of a state organization or people. So to govern is to exercise authority over to conduct the affairs of a group of people at some level. So when we come to that place and we look at what is being governed... We then dive a little bit deeper into what does scripture teach about governing. Hold your place, Romans chapter 13. Turn with me, if you will, over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. 
we have a principle taught in Genesis chapter 1 that really truly is the foundation of governing and therefore the foundation of government. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So, here is man made in the image of God after the likeness of God. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. God creates man, he places him in the garden, and in the garden he gives him a dominion mandate. You are to have dominion over the earth. So in the beginning, Adam is created, and Adam is given this mandate to have dominion, to exercise authority over. So in the beginning, made in the likeness of God, Adam governs. He has dominion. He governs over all of the earth at that point, and then he continues on to begin to govern in his own house. And we'll see more of that in just a second. One of the things that gets us in a bit of a bind here from a moral and spiritual point of view is that Adam governs in the garden, but at some point, and we don't have an exact date and time and amount of time, at some point sin enters into the picture. But there is a period in which there is governing on this earth without sin. Wouldn't you like to know more about that? Wouldn't it have been great if society could have had time to develop and to grow and there could have been enough people that we could see how government works devoid of sin? But we really don't have that. We have this brief dominion mandate in which there is governing, but it's short. Adam then is placed into a position of authority in his home. And the Lord begins to, and then throughout Scripture, we get an understanding of the role of the husband, the father in the home, the role of the wife in the home, the role of children in the home. And in each of these, there is authority that is exercised and overseen. Therefore, there is governing in the home. So when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you have the first dominion mandate, the first example of governing, and then you have the family that develops. And so we see that the family is the first government. So the family is unit is the first place in which governing occurs. Now, it obviously has to grow from there. It can't just stay inside of that family unit. But there is a time in which the family is the ruling and governing body. Today, one of the reasons government doesn't work well is because the family doesn't work anymore. Now, the model for the family absolutely works. But people don't exercise the principles of family government. And therefore, because they don't exist, it continues on. I read an article by an individual who wrote, he said, one of the problems in society today is we're trying to blame so much on a background in diversity when it comes down to a demise in the family. He said, for too many young men, the first time they are confronted by a police officer, 
it's the first time an individual has ever told them what to do in their life that they had to obey. They did not grow up in a home environment in which there was an authority in the home who exercised authority and who, and I'm adding to his words now, who governed over them. So they don't understand how to live in a governed society. When sin comes in, it now creates a sin nature that is involved in government. If society, under Adam, had not fallen, now there wasn't a lot of society, I understand, but if society had not fallen, we could see how government worked, quote unquote, in a vacuum. We could understand how it worked in a sinless state. But we really don't have any record of that. So instead, what we have is how government now has to work under those that have sin nature. The problem with sin nature is now the one who governs is a sinner, and the one who is governed is a sinner. So our sin nature makes it so that government now functions depraved. Government works in a situation in which it cannot be perfect. Human sin makes government more necessary and more dangerous. What is, by definition, a lack of government? It's anarchy. In the book of Judges, the Bible teaches us, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no leading governing body, and people just did kind of whatever they wanted to. When you have anarchy, you have a complete lack of government. And any time you have anarchy, you have chaos. Human sinfulness makes it so that people left to themselves without governing tend towards more and more sinfulness. Government has sinfulness in it because the people running government are sinners. So sin nature makes government work less effectively but makes it even more necessary. What a conundrum that becomes. Because it can't work the way that it should work because the people running it are sinful. And then at the same time, because of the sinful nature of man, you need it more than ever. The world actually can recognize this. They, they couldn't put it into the same words, but they can recognize it. For those in our society who look at what's going wrong in the world... What is their answer to fixing what's going on in the world? More government. Get more government control, put bigger government in place, and then all of a sudden... Now, ironically, they want more government control, but they want less police. So see how that works out for you. Uh, but but they, they begin to now try and say, if government can be bigger and more all-encompassing and begin to take control of this child's life from the time they're an infant and can govern the home, and then can govern the children, then eventually society will solve all of its problems. The problem is, those in government are sinful. And so the more sinful man is, the greater the need, but the less effectively it works. So how do you put this all together? Well, we recognize that the need becomes for more godly government. For those in government to be more spiritual. Our country, at its core, at its foundation, recognized that government was not the solution. 
that godly government was the solution. And so they were faced with this battle and it continues to grow. As human sinfulness infects government, we have to recognize that government takes on many different forms. Lack of government, anarchy. Then you have other types of government today. Well, we're not going to spend time looking at all of the types of government. But please understand, wherever there is order, there is a testimony to God. Wherever there is order, there is a testimony to God in that order. So if anarchy is the complete absence of the governing principle, the mandates that God put into place, then when you look now and you see anytime there is some type of order, it points people back to God and to his definition of order. Therefore, any kind of government is better than anarchy. We tend to approach government when as long as it agrees with me, then it's better than anarchy. But it's because in normal general life, we surround ourselves by people who agree with us. So when we come to government and we recognize government is ordained by God, it was God's plan, he put the mandate in place, he then defines our role as gospel believers when it comes to government. And any type of government is better than anarchy. So we then come to whatever type of government and we bring the principles of Romans chapter 13 to those principles. Let every man, every soul, be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whatever government that you fall under, they're the power that is ordained of God. I don't like that. I don't want that to be true. Isn't it fair to say that we come to Romans chapter 13 and we look for limits? We look for limiting statements inside of Romans chapter 13. But Romans chapter 13 lacks limiting statements. Let every soul. Okay, well, what does that include? Who does that include? Well, that's pretty comprehensive. Okay, let everyone. All right, be subject unto the higher powers. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. Anyone is subject to powers that are ordained of God, the government. And if you resist those powers, you are resisting God. Wouldn't that whole passage go a lot better if we could say to godly governments... Because now you've got a limiting phrase there to what type of government I have to submit to. Wouldn't that phrase be better if it were some governments, some powers, righteous, any type of limiting phrase? But the problem is there's not. And again, who is Romans chapter 13 written to? Romans. So when we look at their government structure compared to ours, it's a totally different ballgame. So in Romans chapter 13, there is no lack here of our need to submit. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. For he is a minister of God to them for good. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject. All of these phrases show and demonstrate that authority is given by God. 
and not some authority, all authority is given by God. Let's think of one biblical example for a minute of this principle carried out in which we see both the plus, the minus, and the destructive nature. Let's go back to the book of Daniel. When we go back into Daniel and we consider King Nebuchadnezzar, we have in our mind certain pictures because of the great childhood stories that come out of the book of Daniel. We think of Daniel in the lion's den. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But when we come to that, we have to consider who Nebuchadnezzar was. How did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego end up in captivity under Nebuchadnezzar? Well, Nebuchadnezzar sends his army. His army goes and they besiege Jerusalem. They go around the city, they cut off all of the food supply, and they basically begin to allow everyone to starve to death. And then, once they finally have control now, they come in, and what do they do? They kidnap all of the children. Nebuchadnezzar goes in, he kidnaps all of the children, especially any child who has any type of royal lineage, anyone who would have any type of background that would give him authority among other Jews. He kidnaps all of these children, he brings them into a place to where he can brainwash all of the kids. He trains them up, He gives them names of false gods to make them worship false gods. He teaches them in the way of the Chaldeans. And he brainwashes them so that they can later be put in charge of the rest of the Jews and brainwash all of them. When we look at Nebuchadnezzar, we see a man who is extremely arrogant. A man who has a huge statue built in his honor and makes everyone worship The statue that represents him. If they will not worship him, he puts them to death. Even three guys he likes. He's going to put them to death. He is so arrogant that God sends him a warning. Look, you're going to lift yourself up and when you do, I will put you down. A year later, he walks in and he says, oh, look at the kingdom I have built. And in his arrogance... He remembers the words of God, and he is driven away for years to be nothing more than a wild animal. And as a wild animal, he grazes out in the field until finally the Lord brings him back and puts him back into position as king. We call him Nebuchadnezzar. But if he were alive today, what would his name be? You think of the ruler there in uh, Korea, Kim Jong-un, and what a terrible man he is. And I don't think you could argue that he's as bad as Nebuchadnezzar was. You take a man like Hitler, and Hitler was so anti the Jewish people that he did everything in his power to destroy them. He became so controlling that he took control of the churches in Germany and made it to where what they could teach and what they could not teach was dictated by him. When we see Nebuchadnezzar, we see kind of this historic figure that we, we make almost harmless in some ways. But he was as wicked as any king that has ever been, any ruler that has ever been. He was a terrible, terrible man. And yet Daniel submitted to him in many ways. So 
we recognize that when Scripture says all authority is given by God, it is all authority. Herod and Pilate both had a hand in crucifying the Savior. And it was during this time that the Lord was confronted about, are we supposed to to pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, yes. Knowing that that whole governmental structure would lead to his death. You see, sometimes we want to take authority and we want to look at that authority, we want to look at that government and we want to go, yeah, but, and we want to limit it. Now, we're going to come back to to Peter here in a minute and, and see something, but the reality is the level that we are supposed to submit to the governing body of authority that is in our life is far greater than what we generally are willing to do. And biblical submission to authority is more than what we expect. You would have had to have been there at the time to understand what it was like in Rome in the New Testament times. Paul had such an occasion to speak out on the matter of submitting to authority. Jewish people despised their rulers. They had a long history of insurrection, rebellion, and guerrilla warfare against Rome. While Rome did rule with an iron hand, we must also acknowledge that there were many times when Roman leaders bent over backwards to try to pacify and accommodate the Jews. Releasing a criminal at Passover. The Jews had a history, even going back into the Maccabean revolts, in which they were intended to destroy the Roman Empire. Many rabbis taught, based on Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, that it was their God-ordained responsibility to rebel against the pagan conquerors. Christians were also beginning to feel the persecution at the hand of Rome. It would be a natural human reaction to speak evil against those in authority over them and to disobey at every opportunity. It was against this backdrop that Paul asserts that we are to do the exact opposite. Make no mistake, God uses evil governments. God can use governments that are evil for his glory. When you consider going back in history, the evil nation of Egypt was used because of Joseph to help protect the young nation of Israel from starving to death. In the book of Joshua going into Judges, as they're going into the promised land, there were evil governments that were used to help get the nation of Israel back to doing what's right. Oftentimes it was the Philistines. There in Joshua, little bitty Ai put Israel to chase because they were trying to move forward without the hand of God on their life. And God used Ai against Israel. When you look at Rome for the evilness of the empire, if it had not been for the Roman government and the control, the highways, the language that they brought in, it would not have been the perfect time for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is born at a time where the gospel message could spread through the world. He was born at a time where the language of the gospel could be written and communicated for thousands of years to come. God can use an evil government for his glory. Jesus specifically taught submission to civil authority. In Mark chapter 12, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? 
But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is the image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. During the intertestamental period, it was theologically proper to rebel against all authority. But Jesus taught a different perspective. Jesus said, let me see the coin. On that coin, there's the image of Caesar on there. He said, this coin is made in his image, therefore give him what is made in his image. But don't forget, you are made in my image, therefore give to me what is made in my image. The coin was the image of Caesar and belonged to him. The person was the image of God and belonged to him. Jesus is teaching in this principle a simple truth. That yes, there is government. And there in Romans 13, I've put that government there. And though you may think they're perfectly evil, all authority is God given. And therefore, you need to submit to that authority. When it comes to the power of God and it comes to the role of God for us in government, we recognize that there is a limit to government and it comes when it overlaps the authority of God. In Acts chapter 5 verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The only limit to complete submission to civil authority is a violation of God's word. We see it in several instances in Scripture, and we even see it historically. When it came to killing the babies there in Egypt, the midwives in Israel disobeyed the commandment that was handed down from Pharaoh. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel refused to eat the portion of the king's meat. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to be burned to death. Daniel was willing to be thrown to the lion's den. Daniel would not cease to pray. Peter and John continued to preach in Christ's name there in Acts chapter 4. There are times in which governing principles conflict directly with the word of God. And at that point, we are to obey God rather than man. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13. We see now a very parallel passage to Romans chapter 13. But we see a limit clause, if you will, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. We submit to kings, we submit to authority as if they are from God. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now that phrase right there ought to concern us. Because too often we can fall into the ignorance of foolish men. Because we then begin to be the ones rebelling against authority when we don't need to be. As free... And not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. When it comes right down to it, the limiting factor. 
that we have when it comes to obeying government is the word of God. Does it conflict with the clear teaching of God? And if it does, then there comes a place in which we do not submit to the authority that government has. Because the government has superseded the authority given to them by God. Let me put it to you another way. The one that has rule over the temporal affairs of life should receive submission in those areas. Now, just a minute. We're going to take a moment to look at a couple of practical things nowadays. But a a, a general guideline here is if it is temporal in nature, then I should submit. If the law, the rule, the mandate from government is temporal, then it's not dealing with things that are true according to Scripture, then I submit in those areas. St. Augustine, back hundreds and hundreds of years ago now, put the distinction in his own terms. He said, it is as if there are two commonwealths, the city of man, an earthly city, and the heavenly city, the city of God. Both exist in this world, but they have divergent faiths, hopes, and loves. The earthly city's faith rests in worldly powers. Its hopes are limited to the temporal horizon, and it loves seeking finite goods. The heavenly city's faith is in God. It hopes for eternal life, and its love is directed towards God and others in God. Thus, we should not think of the two cities as existing in two different locations. They do not operate on different planes of existence with the heavenly city spiritual in the sense of having no earthly embodiment and the earthly city simply equivalent to any temporal project or endeavor. Instead, the two cities have different orders of love and they are intermixed together in this life and can only be untangled at the final judgment. So it's not as if I have to completely separate these two. Government and authority is ordained by God and there is an obedience and submission to a government and authority that I have to exercise in temporal areas. But because I am created in God's image, I don't just live in the temporal. Because the temporalness of this life affects eternity. So these two, as they overlap, means... That as I go through life, I have eternal aspects that overlap my temporal daily life. And so I can't just say that matters of this life I have to give to the government. Because there are matters of this life that affect eternity. And I have to put those together. So if anyone thinks that because he is a Christian, he doesn't have to pay taxes or show proper respect to those that care for these things, the temporal things in this life, he is in great error. Likewise, if anyone thinks that he ought to submit to the point that he accepts that someone that is his authority in temporal areas should have authority over his faith, he falls into even greater error. The balance that the Lord himself prescribes are to be maintained. Caesar has no right to claim my soul, my worship, or spiritual matters. He has no right to cause me to deny Christ or the rule of Christ. My submission to government makes my say in government more important, not less important. When you come to this place and you say, okay, so what you're saying, Pastor, is that temporal areas, 
I have a say, or excuse me, in temporal areas, I have to submit to government. In spiritual areas, I submit to God. Then we come to an American culture in which we actually have a say in government. Many people would say, well, if that's the case and I have to submit to government no matter what, I should take my hands off and I should just let government do whatever it says and as long as it doesn't conflict with God, then I just give in and I submit to that government. Isn't that what the passage is saying? Well, not exactly. The passage is saying that I have to submit to government. And we got to get on board with that. I have a responsibility as a gospel believer to submit to government. I just happen to live in a governmental society in which I have say in that government. Please understand, that concept didn't occur to the Roman reading this. It, it, it never registered to them. They had no say. They were a conquered people that were under dominion and they did not have say. And to the Christians in Rome, they fell under the authority of Jews who didn't believe in Jesus Christ and the Roman government. So when they were told to submit, they were submitting to people who were against their way of life and their religion. In our day and age, we live in a unique time in that in our governmental structure, I have a responsibility to submit. But I have say in the decisions that my government makes. And it doesn't make my say less important that I'm willing to submit to government. It makes my say infinitely more important because I can shape the government that I have to submit to. Now pause and think. Take that a logical step further. In your mind, is politics a good career for a Christian? No, no. In my mind, it's not. I look at it and say, if you're honest, you can't be a politician. So it's a terrible career for a Christian because when you look at politics, you assume it to be so corrupt in nature that a Christian can't have any part of it. I know this. I could never get elected to anything because I would just be way too honest about stuff. I can't duck the questions the way that they're doing in all the debates nowadays. But historically, that wasn't the case in America. Because many of those in the highest levels of government in our land were Christian and Bible-believing, and it affected the way that they govern. And now, if it's going to affect the way you, say, rule on the Supreme Court, for instance, it, it would be a big issue to people. There's no need to have to separate biblical truth from a governing body. In fact, the more that it's there, the better that it's there. So... The truth be told, Christians ought to be more involved in politics, not less involved. Because I can have say in the governing authority over me, and I've got to submit to them anyway, so I might as well do everything in my power to make sure what I'm submitting to is as close to biblical principles as humanly possible. Okay, so then you go another step. What happens when government that I have a say in rules opposite of what I believe? Government has no authority over the spiritual and eternal areas of life. So when government rules in a way that is contrary to the spiritual and eternal aspects of life, 
I now fall to a place in which I have a responsibility before God to obey God rather than man. But as long as I can have any say in government, I ought to do everything in my power to try and make sure what government does and what God teaches are as close to the same as humanly possible. And when you look globally today, our government and what the Bible teaches are as close as probably any government in the world. So are there problems? Yes. But this same passage is true to the individual in North Korea who lives in a government in which if you own a page of the Bible, you can be executed. We tend to buck and rebel at government when we have far more alignment with our government and infinitely more say in our government than most people around the world would ever imagine. But there are still times when they disagree. And when they disagree, I have a responsibility in eternal areas to obey God rather than man. Now, we're going to discuss this in just a second, but I have one more statement that we all have to get on board with. There is a difference between my rights as an American and my responsibilities as a Christian. Those are two different things. So I have rights as an American, and I have rights that as an American, I believe I have every legitimate right and responsibility to stand and fight for those rights. But as I do it, there still has to be a submission to the law of the land. My responsibility as a Christian supersedes my rights as an American. And one of my responsibilities as a Christian is to submit to them that have rule over me. All right, now, here's where the rubber meets the road. We certainly don't have time to go through every possible scenario. They're infinite. Let's think about a couple that are common today and how, as believers, this pans out for us. The big question, should I, as a Christian, wear a mask if I'm commanded to wear a mask? Today, there are mask people, anti-mask people, and there is a dominant attitude beside, behind both sides of this. As a Christian, should I wear a mask if the government tells me to? Now... I will pause for a moment and say, I will make somebody mad here because everybody has an opinion on this, okay? So just forgive me if I make you mad, all right? I'm not doing it intentionally. As an American, do I believe I have a right to choose to not wear a mask? Yes, I do. Okay, let me just be honest. As an American, I believe it is my right to refuse to wear one. If the government makes a law and requires it, do I believe I should do it? As a Christian, I have a responsibility to submit to government. Do I think this supersedes the government's right to make a mandate for me as an American? 
And the answer is it doesn't matter. It's temporal, and therefore I should submit. And I'm grateful we live in a state where they have not made a mandate. But if I live in a state and they do make that mandate, I have a responsibility to submit to that mandate. It's, it's kind of coming back up. But when the Affordable Care Act came about, there was a giant rebellion in our country about I should not be made to have to pay a penalty for not having insurance. Okay? As an American, do I have a right to object to that? Yep. How many of you, just be honest, how many of you remember when it became a requirement to wear a seatbelt and you hated that they had made that law? How many of you, go ahead, raise your hands. I can even remember that as a kid. Yeah, sure. Young people today, if I said to you, how many of you think it's a bad idea to wear a seatbelt? They wouldn't care. It's all they've ever known. Look, I can, as an American, object to a law of the land. And yet, as a Christian, still have a responsibility to submit to that law, even if I don't think it's right, as long as it's temporal. I have every right to fight it. I have every right to vote against it. I have every right to go to court and try and change it. That's my American rights. But my responsibility as a Christian is to be submissive in the process. All right, now let's turn the table. If the government says churches cannot meet because of a pandemic... Do I have a responsibility to shut my church down? Now you've gone from temporal to eternal. As an American, I look at it clearly and say the government has no right to do that. And I believe constitutionally the government has no right to do that. And I believe congressional law will bear that out in time. Having said that, now comes a responsibility as a believer. What is my responsibility as a believer at that time? Now, I do believe, with everything in me, that that answer is more nuanced than yes or no. Okay? Because I do believe that there are health risks associated with a pandemic that have to be considered by churches in using the wisdom that God has given us. And I believe that as a church, we submitted to that Wrecking that that's something the government asked us to do. And as it took some time to understand the ramifications of the pandemic and the spread of it and the danger of it, we as a church were willing to close down for a short time, even though we continued virtually. But there comes a point to where now you have to look at it and say, now there's a responsibility that I have to God to not forsake the assembling of myself together in an eternal spiritual realm that has to overrule the authority of the government. For us, this is temporarily a problem now. If you live in China or North Korea, it's not temporary. As far as you can tell in your country, it's a permanent problem. So if I live in North Korea and they say to me, you cannot assemble together and worship God, do I submit to that authority? Well, no, now we've taken America completely out of it, but I still have a governmental authority in North Korea 
that tells me I cannot spiritually operate. Now they've superseded their earthly authority. And now I have to obey God rather than man. So when I come to this conclusion and to this place, when it's eternal, I look at it eternally. When it's temporal, I look at it temporally. And when I can submit, I do. My attitude is not, when can I come up with a a biblical clause so that I don't have to obey? My attitude should be the opposite. If this is not keeping me from my spiritual role with God, I should do my very best to submit any time that I can. So, we've put in the paperwork for our new church sign. I get a call back. Our sign was declined by the building instructor or building inspector. The reason was not the builder, it was the fire marshal. It was declined because we didn't have 3460 Kellogg Creek Road on the sign. We didn't have the address of the church on there. That was okay. That's a reasonable assumption. How many of you know the gym has a different address? The gym, uh, yeah, I do now. Uh, the gym is 3472. We cannot put up this sign unless we put the address to the gym building that nobody knows. Because if there's a fire out there and the fire department rolls down the road, they're not going to notice the huge building on fire. They're going to look for the number on the sign. But isn't it perfectly reasonable to submit to that? Look, I, I have no right other than as an American, to go and petition on that behalf. But if the building inspector comes back to me and says, no, that's what you need, okay. He's my authority, and though I may think it's completely silly, I can submit to that. It's not eternal. But when they come to me and say, you can't worship together, now that's different. All right, so all of that said, we are already past 6 o'clock there's bound to be a thought or a question. Now, please, do not pontificate on this, okay? So, so don't give your opinion about all of the role in politics at this moment. But if you have a biblical point of view on this or a question about this, let's have it. What do you got? Because I probably don't have the answer, but I'll be glad to listen to the question. Any takers? Yes, sir. Big enough that the flowers shouldn't cover them too much. Um, yeah, they, they actually have to be fairly big on there. It's kind of crazy, but anyhow. And I'm sure they're charging an arm and a leg. Yes, sir. It's a good question. As a Christian judge, should they rule based on the law of the land... Or should they rule based on what they believe the Bible teaches? Now, in America, where we have a unique privilege is, there is, and forgive me, I don't remember the Latin term here, but there is a Latin term that describes when lawyers, judges argue and rule based on a pre-existing ruling, and they look at something, a precedent that has been set in a court case, and they make their legal decisions based off of that precedent, that right there can get you to where these two things, pre-existing or uh, pre-ruling and biblical truth, don't align. In that case, now you have an issue. Where we actually enjoy a great advantage in our country 
is constitutional law and biblical law tend to agree. And so you can come back and go away from a pre-ruling by another court and come back to constitutional law. And that constitutional law and biblical law are, are going to be much more in harmony. And the ability to rule on that would be much more simple. One example of that being in the idea of abortion. Though there is a court case that has set precedence on abortion, I believe that it is in contradiction to constitutional law, and so that you could follow constitutional law in that case and be biblical, whereas if you followed precedent, you would be unbiblical. And so that's where I would argue. But I would argue that as a believer, I would have a responsibility to rule towards that aspect of the Christian, Christian principles in constitutional law. But again, far from a lawyer. Okay, so I, I understand that. Anyone else? So all in all, to say, we as Christians should come with an attitude of submission to authority. So that when the fire marshal comes through and says, all of the top shelves back here in storage, you can't store anything on the top shelf. It's a shelf. Why can't I store on it? Because the fire sprinklers don't reach that area well. You need to store further down. So what do I need to do? I need to remove everything off the top shelf and move it down because that's the law of the land. Do I think it's silly? Yes. Do I think 35 miles an hour on Kellogg Creek is silly? Yes. But it doesn't change my need to submit to the authority. Now, again, as an American, I have unbelievable rights to help argue and to go through that process. But as a Christian, I need to seek submission to authority because the authority has been ordained by God. And the longer we live, the more and more that disagreement is going to stretch. But when it comes to a place in which it now causes me to deviate from Scripture. I talked about Hitler and how Hitler got involved in the church and he changed the doctrine in many of the German churches. There was an individual by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was involved in this and, and he wrote basically an essay and sent it out to churches trying to get them to understand that Hitler has no right to come in and define the doctrine of the church. And yet the churches were submitting left and right to Hitler. And he stood up and rebelled against the churches. And he organized other individuals who were recognizing that there was a biblical principle to protect human life here as opposed to turning Jews over to Hitler and have their lives taken away. In the process of this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he ended up, even as a pastor, getting involved in a group that sought the assassination of Hitler. And they almost succeeded in having Hitler assassinated because of his role in trying to destroy other Jews. Bonhoeffer ends up getting arrested. He goes to prison. He's tortured, beaten, and he dies eight days, I believe it was. Eight days before Hitler lost and took his own life and he would have been released. But he was willing to give his life for a principle that was biblical in nature, even though it was against the authority at his time. I do pray that in our lifetime, none of us will ever have to experience that type of a decision. But we have to be willing to say what is biblically true is right. And I will hold to that. Let's pray. Father, may we never 
overlap and mistake the fact that my American rights are a privilege that I have for this country, but my American rights do not supersede my biblical responsibilities. And may, I'm, Lord, I, I don't want us as Americans to give up our rights. I, I believe we should do everything in our power that is legal and right to protect those rights. But Father, may we do them in love, in grace, and in submission, and with a heart attitude towards you of trying to do those things that are pleasing and honoring in your sight. May we also never give up our responsibilities to do what's right out of fear of persecution from a corrupt governmental system. And Father, all of this is taught in your word and we know that it was the governmental system of the day that led to the crucifixion of our Savior. And so what seemed to be the most horrific instance of injustice in all of eternity leads to our redemption. And for that, we will be eternally grateful. So, Father, give us a grace to live in light of what you teach in Romans chapter 13 as gospel acceptors and how we can then be gospel livers in the world in which we are placed. Father, for your glory, we ask these things, and it is because of Christ. Amen. Amen.